You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. Christian Babcock, the host of the Hunter's Advantage podcast. And what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry, talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape, as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all, I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening and watching. Um, we're back with the Hunters Advantage podcast episode number 69. And today we're joined by Lee Hauk. Is that how you say it? Yeah, that's right. Okay, cool. And you're a sales manager at Tooth of the Arrow Broadheads, correct? Yeah, I was a sales manager for a year and uh, had to kind of step back from that role a little bit to just deal with school and whatnot here. But I'm still involved and uh, just working on their YouTube channel right now and Helping with some of the product development side, but yeah, I did the sales manager thing for a year. That's cool. How'd you get kind of plugged in with them? I saw some of your recent YouTube videos. I saw the three fletch versus the four fletch yeah. on YouTube. Um, so I was on their pro staff for a couple of years. Um, the boss, Luke, great guy. He wanted to get some exposure up in Canada and I do quite a bit of traveling with my hunting. So he brought me onto the pro staff. Um, and then it just lined up that he had a part-time gig, which worked out really well with my school schedule. Uh, I'm a university student up here. So, uh, yeah, that's how it lined up. Where do you, where are you from and, and maybe where do you go to school? I mean, I, we haven't had an, I think you're our first maybe Canadian, uh, on, on the podcast. Yeah. I'm, uh, in Calgary, Alberta. Okay. And, uh, cool. I go to the university of Calgary here. That's cool. Well, man, I was watching, uh, it, well, from, from your Instagram, it looks like you're a pretty accomplished bow hunter already, just like the plethora of species that you've been able to to harvest with your bow. I was actually watching your, one of your, I think it was your old bear hunt from like 2014 oh, yeah. on, on YouTube, uh, shooting a treed bear. That was pretty neat. What was up with that hunt? Yeah, that was, uh, that was in the early days of my bow hunting. We went out to BC that was up by, uh, Smithers, um, and the, in Alberta, you can't hunt bears with a dog, but in BC, you can. Um, and it's a pretty good time. I did that hunt three times. Uh, about half the time, they bay up on the ground, which is more intense than when they're in the tree. And about half the time, they go up. So, uh, yeah, those are good learning experiences. It's pretty hard shooting up. Oh, my gosh. I know. I actually had a I had a bear hunt booked for two years ago. I guess it was right before COVID um, in Saskatchewan. And yeah still haven't been able to do it um because of covid but i was really excited for that hunt yeah well i hope you still get to go because those there's some big bears in saskatchewan and i mean i've had a couple trips put off as well but um keep it booked you're you're gonna love going out there yeah well it was cool because the outfitter i think he was saying you only hunt bear with them in the evenings or something like that and then he was like saying in the mornings you could wake up and like go fish for pike on the lake and stuff i was like this is gonna be a freaking trip yeah, no, that's exactly how it works. I actually did a season of bear guiding up in uh, in northern Alberta here. And mm-hmm. we do the same thing. Like, we'll put a hunter in the tree in the morning for a little bit. But really, the prime time is the evening. So uh, there's a lot of bumming around camp and just doing whatever you want to do for the day. It's a pretty relaxed hunt. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really neat. But, well, I kind of wanted to get a little bit into uh, your origin story, maybe some bow hunting stories, mm-hmm. and then we can kind of talk about Tooth of the Arrow as we kind of wrap up. But how did you get involved in, in bow hunting? How did you get started in that? Because I mean, 
if anyone wants to check out your Instagram, you've already you've already killed some incredible amount of animals and a lot of diversity. How did you get started with that? Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, I started, well, my dad's a big time rifle hunter. He does a lot of sheep and goat hunting. Primarily, he's always traveling um, and grew up in Alberta. I mean, we did a lot of deer and elk hunting every year, but uh, his big thing is the sheep, uh, which led us to the uh, some of the shows in Vegas that happen every year. And I was <clears throat> 11 or 12 going down there with him. And I knew, obviously, I grew up hunting and, and with my dad spending all that time, but I never knew much about bow hunting. So we went to the first, it was the uh, Grand Slam Club Ovis show. I think I was 11. And uh, that's when I really got to see some bow hunting stuff. And I just was hooked. And um, my dad's good friends with Archie Nesbitt, who's, uh, he's one of the best. And he hooked me up with a bow and uh, gave me some lessons. And that was it. That was started the addiction. What's the first animal you got to harvest with a bow? Uh, the first animal, I was 13. I shot a cougar here in Alberta. Cougar was your first animal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did you guys do that with dogs? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty well the only way to do it. Um, I know there's a few guys who are, their life goal is to try to call a cougar in, but uh, it's pretty darn tough. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. I mean, have, are you trying for the, like the North American Big Game Super Slam, or do you have any goals like that, or or what? Yeah, that's uh, that's the plan. I have uh, there's 29 species. I have nine right now with a bow. Um, so that's not bad. You know, about a third of them are down. Uh, that's my life goal. I want to get the Super Slam with a bow. Yeah, that's a that's a hairy audacious goal. <laughs> I mean, are you trying most of these hunts like an outfitted route, or or how are you going about it? Yeah, for most of them, you have to. Um, it's just the nature of, of the laws when you're traveling, and uh, you just can't hunt a lot of places without a guide. But anything I can do self-guided, I will. Um, we're pretty lucky here in Alberta. There's, I believe you can get nine of the Super 10 alone in Alberta. Um, so we're pretty lucky here. But, yeah, you definitely have to do quite a bit of outfitted hunts. Yeah, I'm trying. That's one of my goals, too. And I, I, I kind of have a little bit of the pride of where I want to get a lot of them without a guide, but there's so much like localized knowledge that goes into getting some of these species that you could bust your ass for five years and still not get one of those species. And if you would have just used that money, you could have just went on a guided hunt anyways. Yeah. And I mean, you learn so much on the hunt. Uh, I come out of a lot of these hunts feeling like I could give it an attempt on my own after. So uh, it's money well spent. You got, you're going with experts and usually come out of it with a great animal. Yeah. What was, What's one of the your favorite guided hunts you've you've uh, went on so far? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, the one that stands out a lot is the muskox hunt in mm -hmm. Nunavut. That was uh, just frigid cold. Um, like the day I shot my muskox, it was minus fifty five Celsius. Oh I don't know what the conversion is, uh, <laughs> but yeah, just miserably cold. And uh, they're an animal that doesn't really run away from you. They herd up, and that's their defense. And yeah, that's just, it's some prehistoric stuff. It's really cool. Hmm. That's, that's really neat. So how far of a trip was that for you guys to, to get to get that animal? Uh, well, it takes a couple of days of travel to get in there just because it's so remote. Uh, you fly from Calgary to Edmonton, which is about a three hour drive North. Um, and then up to Yellowknife in the Northwest territories. And then from, uh, there into Cambridge, Maine, none of it. Oh, that's freaking awesome. So is that like, are you having to go out on like a frozen lake with a snowmobile or how, how does that hunt kind of work? <clears throat> yeah, well, that's, that's a good question too. Uh, you, 
meet a meet up in Cambridge Bay and you're with uh, some of the Inuit and they basically just hook you up on their snow machines at their house and you drive out. Um, you drive for a couple minutes on the roads. Everyone uses snow machines everywhere up there. Um, and you're in it, you're in the tundra and you get so far out everywhere you look is flat. You can't see a thing. Um, there's lakes everywhere. You just can't see them because it's all covered. And the, the Inuit like that because they can just drive anywhere in the summer. Uh, they have some challenges with having to go around all the water, but yeah, it's, that's crazy. Something I totally recommend. Yeah. That's a, that's definitely one of those bucket lists hunts too what kind of what kind of shot did you put on an animal are you able to get that pretty close to a muskox or how does that work yeah you can get pretty darn close to them like i say they bunch up uh they circle up and they put the the calves in the middle um and you're really just kind of walking circles around them you know 50 100 yards um till you can pick out the big bull and when you find the big one it's a matter of having him separate enough that you're not going to put an arrow through him and into somebody else uh, that's the challenge, but I shot, I took two shots at that animal. Um, cause I'm a believer. And if they're knocked down and you can get a second one in him, you should always do it. Um, so I shot the first arrow at 25 and he was pretty hurt in the second one, 20 and he just shoulders dropped right there. Oh, dude, that's freaking, that's really cool. What can you tell me about a pretty interesting one, not on the North American slam, but, uh, that, that Ibex that you shot in like it was Spain. What was what was the story of that hunt? That's that's a cool trip. Um, my dad's done a lot of ibex hunting in Spain and and the Chamois, so he had some connections over there. And um, for those that don't know, there's four Spanish ibex. It's comparable to the way we have four sheep in North America. There's the Grand Slam of the ibex, um, and the Greedos is the one I have, and it's pretty well the first one that anyone goes after. They're the most attainable with a bow. Um, but yeah, it's just crazy to get out in some mountains that don't resemble Canada at all. Um, you're with the foreign guides, you're staying in nice hotels and drinking nice wine. It's, that was a fantastic hunt. So how do you, are you just spot and stock on those animals up in the mountains? Like how are you getting close to them? Yeah, it's, it's spot and stock just like sheep hunting here. Um, generally because it's planned out so far in advance, uh, they have park rangers going out and locating for you a bit in advance, but, uh, my hunt didn't end up being that challenging we shot one on the first day they knew where it was when we got there roughly and we walked in and it was right where we thought it was going to be after the hike so really just a matter of dropping packs and making a stock and it was one of those hunts where not a lot of them happened this way but everything kind of went according to plan you're shooting a i think a little bit of a different bow company that i've seen too <laughs> what's what's that bow it kind of has a little bit of a unique look to it i think it's a canadian made bow yeah, that was APA. I was with APA for a few years. Uh, they make great bows, smaller company, uh, but definitely worth checking out. Um, and then in the last couple of years, I've switched over to Bowtech and I'm shooting a Realm SR6 now. So, I mean, it looks like you do a decent amount of hunting in the States as well. Um, what are your, some, some of your more notable hunts across like the U.S.? I love Wyoming. I've been to Wyoming three times for the pronghorn uh or antelope we call them pronghorn up here usually um mm -hmm. that's a really cool state i want to go back there it's not an expensive hunt um we have a lot of them in alberta but uh we don't water hole hunt them and i i don't mind sitting in a blind at all so wyoming's as good as it gets for that um alaska too i did a grizzly bear hunt up in alaska unsuccessful but um just even being in that country is amazing 
I think pronghorn are probably one of my favorite animals to hunt. We've shot some with a rifle and then we've also hunted them with a bow, but we hunt them in like the plains of Oklahoma out in the panhandle, getting more towards like maybe like Western Kansas or Southeast Colorado, uh, that area. And spot and stock with a bow and i've we've hunted them over water holes too but spot and stock with a bow antelope are are so fun to hunt yeah i've heard i i i would like to hear some more stories on that because i've never done the decoying with them but that's what everybody says that's it doesn't get more fun than that we've had a a situation with a decoy where it's the guy we were with it was kind of like a self-guided thing they just have like a big ranch out there and it's like if you can get um as you want to get as close to them as you possibly can before you pop up the decoy and they're really curious animals. So like, if you're really low to the ground, they almost like come up to investigate <laughs> and then you pop up the decoy and they're like, what? And then they, some of them, like we had to count one sprint from like 300 yards into like 75 yards to check out the decoy. And it's, it's pretty awesome to, to see him do that. No, oh, I'd love to do it. I'd love to do it. It's a, it's a pretty big tag in Alberta. I think it takes, 10 or 12 years in some areas to get the point or to get the, get the tag, but uh, I'm close to having enough points. So it's on my list. Um, So you said you, you like the pronghorn. What what else? I mean, you've done an elk as well in, in Alberta. Yeah. I, I go elk hunting every year in Alberta and that's, I always tell people who haven't done it. Uh, it's life changing. When you have a bull elk scream at you at 15 yards in your face, it's a life changing moment. Are those Rocky mountain elk that you guys have or, or what, yeah. what they are? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Alberta doesn't have the biggest elk. We have a lot of them and there are some pretty big elk that come out of Alberta, but uh, not like what you're seeing in Arizona or some of the Southern States, but the populations are really healthy up here. Like you can get a general tag every year. So is it a lot of over the counter, like public land or, or what kind of hunting are you, are you doing for elk? Yeah, pretty much entirely over the counter public land, a few private land spots we got up here, but like the elk move so much. Uh, you can't rely on a few quarters or a couple of sections for access. Um, so yeah, every elk I've killed in Alberta has just been a general over-the-counter tag on public. Really? So what's the what's like the status of the public land up there? Do you guys have quite a quite a bit of it, or is it pretty plentiful? Yeah, we have a lot of public land. Um, that's the beautiful thing about Alberta. We have, we have tons of public land. There's a lot of roads going through it because of the logging. Um, yeah, there's no shortage of places to hunt. The private access is tough. Um, as it is anywhere but uh, if you can get it I mean you can go I live just on the edge of Calgary and you don't have to drive 15 minutes before you're in good bow hunting zone if you can get the access so Alberta's pretty well set up yeah that is that is pretty awesome are you hunting a lot of private when you're hunting for whitetail I mean you guys have look like you have some pretty big whitetail up there as well yeah all my whitetail hunting is private Um, I'm just lucky with some landowners I got connections with and whatnot Um, and it definitely helps. It makes it easier, but, uh, I like it cause I, I'm the only person on that spot and I can, I can, I know every deer there and I can manage who dies and who lives and, you know, grow them up. So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty well all private for the whitetail. So can you guys do baiting for, for like whitetail up there? No, uh, they can really? in Saskatchewan, but not in Alberta. What's up with that? That's weird. Yeah. They're, I know they're talking about changing it and nobody likes the rule. Um, I'm for baiting. I think it's a good thing if we were allowed to do it. Um, but yeah, it's just politics. Yeah. There's some wonky stuff going on too. I don't know if you saw it recently, but Utah just banned like trail cameras. Like you can't use trail cameras anymore. I know what craziness, eh? (laughs) Yeah. That's, it is wild. I mean, 
it sucks for the trail cam companies that are selling all of the Utah guys. I mean, there's a lot of game out there that I'm sure people want to use trail cams for. And it's just, that sucks. One of my buddies tried to punk me and he sent me an article. He's like, yeah, they're, they're banning trail cams in Oklahoma too. I was like, Oh no. That's awful. And if they did it, man, that would be just crazy. There's so many hunters in Utah. There's so much good deer hunting. I can't believe that they would do that. It's not a smart move in my eyes, but yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. So we got to talk a little bit about some of your bow hunting background and what's your experience using um, the company on your hat? I mean, the Tooth of the Arrow Broadheads. I mean, is that something that you've been using throughout a lot of your bow hunting journeys or kind of had yeah. that start for you? Yeah, pretty well exclusively for the last three or four years. I've only used Tooth of the Arrow. I played around with a lot of different companies. Um, I'm a bow tech here too, so I have the opportunity to do a lot of testing and you know, in shop kind of stuff. And I've shot a lot of mechanicals. I've shot a lot of different fixed blades. Uh, what led me to tooth of the arrow is the one piece design. Um, I, I just really like that. I don't like it when a broadhead is held together by a couple of screws. Um, it's just, I don't know. It's a security thing for me, you know? Yeah. Almost like an insurance policy. Yeah. I just feel like it's a strong design when it's milled out of a solid bar of steel it's just that it's just that one more piece of confidence here in your equipment and confidence goes a long ways when you're shooting stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of debate around fixed and mechanical and, and obviously people can have success with either one of those. And I think one of the issues that people commonly talk about when they, at least when they speak of on fixed uh, broadheads is like tunability and field point accuracy. And that's actually one of the things that tooth of the arrow has like in their, in their statement on social media is like field point accuracy. What's your, so what's your experience with tuning those broadheads and actually flying like a field point? How does, how does that work? Well, um, I guess with any fixed blade, if your bow isn't totally in check, they won't fly. And that's just the reality of it. Um, some will be more forgiving than others. Um, <clears throat> my experience with tooth of the arrow is that they're, they're very good. They do fly like field points. If you're paper tuned, I know some people don't believe in that. Um, but I paper tune, if you're paper tuned, I yoke tune as well. Um, you, your, your arrows are spine matched. You have all your ducks in a row. They will fly perfectly. I shoot these things out to hundred yards at practice, um, and a big reason why the tooth of the arrow in particular flies so good, I actually have one here, is the, where's my camera? Their weight center design. So 90% of the weight is right in line with the arrow shaft. That is what makes them fly like a field point. So that's interesting. I mean, is on a lot of other fixed blade designs, are they not in line with the arrow shaft or is the weight distributed differently? Yeah, Uh some of the some some of the heads you see on the market have an aluminum ferrule. Aluminum is very light and steel blade, so so the weight is then further away from the center of the arrow. Um, and what that does is it makes your now your arrow is being steered by the front end and the back end. Whereas we we really believe we want only the fletching steering your arrow. And as far as fixed blades go, there in my opinion, there isn't a better way to do it than with what we've done. Is there a benefit to shooting maybe the, I'm not sure how to the arrow breaks it down, but a, like a vented bra, a, like blade design versus just the steel solid blade? Like what's the, what's the differences between the two of those? Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought it up because that's the new line we just released. Um, all the broadheads that we've previously made um, look like this with the venting in them. 
except for the 175. It was completely solid. Um, <clears throat> so now this year we've released this. This is just a prototype, so it's not um, black and it's not heat treated, but this is the broadhead and it's completely solid, uh, 100 grain. And, <clears throat> you know, it comes down to per personal preference. I've shot them both and they both shoot the same for me. Um, the advantage of the vented one is at longer range, it's less prone to wind planing. If you're shooting in the wind, it's less prone to crosswinds. Um, so if I was shoot, if I was a long range shooter, guys out west, which I am, I shoot the vented. Um, when I'm in the whitetail blind shooting 20, 30 yards, I want to shoot the solid because it's going to penetrate better. Um, some say it's a little bit quieter. I haven't really ever had an issue with noise and flight either way. Um, and it's it is a stronger head. Is it a stronger head because there's no the structural integrity of the broadhead's better because it has no cutouts, not missing any any material, no yeah. places to break. That's why it is. Yeah, it's just less prone to breaking a blade, and that's the nature of it. I mean, blades break on anything. If you hit something hard, it, it can happen. But this just ups that level for sure. Hmm, that's interesting. I think another thing I, I like about the about at least the fixed blades kind of the design one the two the arrow looks like it has a like a slim profile like the cutting diameter is not <laughs> massive and and that's something yeah. like the the broadhead and i guess the outdoor industry has kind of been selling for a long time is like cutting diameter getting the biggest hole and but instead of cutting a slash you're like you're punching out at like an entire square <laughs> on an animal and I don't know if you're familiar with any of the work of like uh, Dr. Ed Ashby. He talks oh, yeah. about like, yeah, the Ashby bow hunting foundation. I mean, he talks about uh, penetration, lethality, and like one of the main things um, to killing animals is getting a pass through and having two holes. And totally that's, that's what I really like about the, at least the fixed blade design is it, it doesn't have the biggest cutting diameter, but it, it seems like it'd be really effective. I mean, what's your experience in, in getting pass throughs with these? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's uh, that's what I believe is a huge component to to having successful hunts is getting pass-throughs. Um, big part of the reason I choose uh, fixed over expandable now, you hit an animal in the shoulder, that sucks. But with a fixed blade, you have a far better chance of getting that arrow to punch through the other side. Um, in terms of experience with that, I shot a doe out here in Alberta last year with one of the tooth of the arrow. And uh, <clears throat> I had never been great at shooting out of a chair. I shoot off in a blind. I shoot off my knees now. Um, but I made a, for, a little bit forward shot, and I hit her right through both shoulders and dropped like I shot her with a gun. And arrow didn't blow through. Um, it came out, but it didn't totally pass through. So, you know, I was pretty impressed with that. Um, and then on my Spanish Ibex, I put a tooth of the arrow through. Uh, it was a quartering towards shot. I put it through a scapula and it came out um, behind the other shoulder. Um, and that puts him down so fast. So, uh, yeah, I've got some good experiences with these. So would you even think about taking a quartering two shot through a scapula with a expandable? I'd be nervous about it. I, I don't um, think I'd try it personally. I did it once uh, on a on a pronghorn. The pronghorn that I shot in Wyoming um, shooting a high poundage bow, they're a small animal. I did it and it worked. Um, but would I do it again? Would I shoot an Alberta whitetail with it? Probably not. No. I mean, I'm shooting a 525 grain, um, Eastern axis, like an FMJ and I shoot expandables and it takes a, 
a large, I shoot swacker. I mean, I've shot everything. I've shoot fixed. I've shot expandables, but this last season I was shooting swackers. I kind of like rotate through stuff half, half yeah. the time, but um, I was having issues getting pass throughs with those expandables on 20 yard broadside shots with a, what I would consider a, a fairly heavy arrow, just mm-hmm. the kinetic energy it takes to open up those blades and pass through both sides. And that was a real issue for me. It, it kind of stinks. Yeah, totally. I mean, I have a very similar setup to you. I shoot, um, I shoot the Sirius Apollos, which are very much like an Axis. Uh, 530 grains is what I shoot. Um, yeah, and I mean, the only thing I could say that'll help your penetration is fixed blade broadheads, man. I'm a big believer. Yeah, well, I'm from Oklahoma, and like, it's funny, uh, <laughs> like, it's full of like Native Americans, and the Tooth of Yero, like, kind of reminds me of like, it's not a single bevel, obviously, but it's like, shooting a fixed blade seems to be going back to something that almost always worked like a, uh, like an arrowhead. What like natives had it figured out a long time ago, um, with just that, that simple design. Um, and before we came out with all these expanding broadheads, these cut on contacts, these rubber bands and stuff, I was actually, it's funny. I was in Colorado when you're hunting, uh, for elk and I had those rage that had the, uh, they have like a rubber band around them mm-hmm. and, I got like eight miles back in there and I realized I had broke like four rubber bands. I didn't bring any extra rubber bands. I had one arrow and one broadhead left eight miles back in there. That doesn't <laughs> happen when you shoot a face blade. No, it doesn't. That's unfortunate. Uh, I, I believe they are phasing out that system, right? They got the new plastic mm-hmm. collars and I know like Grim Reaper there. Is it little magnets that they're held in with? I don't know how they hold in, but there are better designs. But at the end of the day, yeah, it's not foolproof. That's for sure. Well, I think going to something like a tooth of the air, like a like a fixed blade broadhead, is is well, not only is it an insurance policy, you're also you're like taking all the limiting factors and taking points of failure off the table. And I think that's one of the advantages to tooth of the arrow's design is like you're taking away all the screws, even within the broadhead itself. And I know that these companies are positioning it like, oh, these interchangeable blades. Well. If I break a broadhead, I'll put a new one on. I'm not worried about changing the blades out. Yeah, totally. I, I get that a lot because um, I'm on the phones. As the sales manager, when I was doing that, I, I'm on the phones all day with shops, uh, mostly talking to the American shops. And th- one of the only complaints I really hear is that guy, they're like, well, guys don't want a blade you have to sharpen. They want replaceable blades. And I tell them, well, that's kind of the point of ours is that you can sharpen it and you can reuse that broadhead a lot. And you don't have to replace it. And the fact that I can take one broadhead apart with a screw and put a new blade on it, it just makes me nervous shooting big animals and you hit them in a bone and it just makes me nervous. So yeah, keeping a sharpener in my backpack is one thing I do. Uh, We make our own. Um, I believe that's a big point to what we got going for us. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I mean, were you guys, when you were the sales manager, were you guys catching some significant amount of traction with the broadhead? It seems like I've seen a, a decent amount of growth on even on social. I know you guys are just starting on YouTube, but on Instagram, it seems like you guys are definitely growing. Yeah, we just about doubled last year. I mean, we I think we, we were up over about 100% last year. Um, in my time, I we got into 104 new shops across the U.S. and Canada. Um, we're working on getting distribution going, uh, and yeah, it's just continuing to grow and the introducing introduction of this new line, um, people are excited about it. So yeah, things are booming and 
we're excited about it. What's kind of the the origin story of Tooth of the Arrow? Like, like how how is it created and who created it? And I saw it was being currently produced in Minnesota. Is that right? Yeah, it still is. Um, so Luke Luke Allison, the boss, and his dad, um, they're in the manufacturing business for years and years and years, um, and they're just born hunters, you know. And they his dad developed this broadhead, and they started manufacturing and selling it. Um, but really they're a manufacturing company that now makes their own broadheads and they make, I mean, there's NDAs, so we can't really talk about which companies, but they make a lot of archery components and uh, you know, 75% of hunters in America have shot something made at the tooth of the arrow factory, whether they know it or not. That's interesting. Yeah. That <laughs> that's kind of funny. That's a, that's like a rabbit in the hat. That's a, yeah, like a little secret. Yeah. Well, that's cool, man. I mean, uh, Talking about like tunability on an arrow, um, what do you see flying best with with your with these broadheads? Are you you're a three? You're not a three uh, vein guy. You're a four vein guy. Why why is that? I just I I've tested both, and realistically, I think that both fly very well. I think it's more of a mental thing for me having one more vein. That's that's one more vein helping steer the back end of your arrow. Um, they do work better in wind. I know there's a lot of people who don't believe it. So these are just my opinions. Don't blast me. But um, it's just something I've been doing for a few years and it works. It works really well. So I'm just happy to stick with it. Yeah, I've, I, uh, I have some like anecdotal evidence kind of too. And in, in, in that realm, I shoot a four, a four van configuration. Uh, I shoot the AE Max Dell. I think they're like a 2.7 yep. inch vein. Um, same one. What do you shoot? I shoot the blazers. Okay. Yeah. Like a little more lower profile, right? Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So I switched to that and I don't know if I also switched. There's several other things that I switched at the same time. I mean, went to a stiffer arrow, uh, shoot more draw weight, that sort of thing. But it just seems like with that four vein config at longer distances, I could almost sit and just watch my arrow just fly. Just the truest flight I've ever seen. Whereas before it, it kind of felt like when I was shooting, I had a slight wobble in, in my arrow and that could, maybe that's because I was underspined, but it just seems like the four vein config is something that's really worked for me well over time. Totally. And that will happen if you're shooting, for example, a fixed blade with poor weight distribution, um, you will see that wobble and part of it, there's a many reasons it can happen, but part of it could be that the front of your arrow and the back of your arrow are fighting each other for control of that arrow in the air. And that's where you see some fish tailing coming from. Um, I've actually played around with a lot of fletching configurations. I did once six veins on my, on my arrow just to see how it shot. And that thing shot fantastic. It slowed down really fast, um, <laughs> but it flew perfectly and you could watch it fly through the air like a golf ball. So, you know, six isn't practical for hunting, but I saw that six flew better than anything I ever shot. Um, Again, not practical, but that would imply that the addition of a vein or more does make arrow fly better. So I think four is a really practical thing that everybody should do. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I mean, where do you stand as far as um, kind of this this movement? You talked about, we talked about that, Ashby, a little bit. Um, where do you stand on the high FOC, the super heavy arrow um you know, going forward, like that. I know a lot of people are probably under spine shooting a super light arrow. Where do you stand on that? 
Uh, yeah, a bit of a hot topic these days, eh? Yeah, it is. Um, I learned a lot from John Dudley. I used to listen to his podcast a lot. Um, and one thing I really got from him is that arrows fly optimally about 270 to 280 feet per second. And it's not designed to fly faster. And of course, there's exceptions. People shoot in 320 and they fly great, sure. But in my experience, I try to shoot the heaviest arrow that I can that keeps my bow in that 270 to 280 feet per second range. And I've never had a problem shooting fixed blade broadheads with that. So I shoot 70 pounds, I shoot 30 and a half inches. Um, and that puts my arrow at about uh, 530. And I'm at 276, I think was last time I chronographed. We have a very similar setup. I'm yeah. 70 pounds, 30 inches, 525. Yeah. I mean, we're like spitting distance. Yeah. It's like specs. Yeah. That's, it's that's good really specs cool. to have having long arms man i'm thankful i was born with long arms oh i know i mean my buddies like they're trying to crank their draw weight like 10 pounds heavier to me cool. to get the same numbers and i'm like just add a uh, two inches of draw length that, that'll help <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, i mean they can't help it yeah john dudley's a really good resource as far as yeah. tuning arrow so you're just saying like <clears throat> get the heaviest arrow you can to shoot still shoot with that within that range what's your opinion or um i actually had a scenario where i had some string stretch in my bow and brought me down to that that 262 mark and that's something i've actually i've actually got to fix now that i'm thinking about it before next season but you said you've been working as an archery tech for for a while yeah yeah what's what's the most common thing you see people coming in that they don't understand about their setup what do you guys fix the most for people because i i see a lot of people that they bring their bow out right before season. They shoot it a few times and, and they just get going. They don't tune it. They're not putting, they're not maintaining it. Like what, what are the issues that you most common see in the bow shop? Um, by far the number one issue is improper spine. I mean, you can read and find your spine on a, every company makes a spine chart and that will get you in the right range. But I use an online tool. There's many of them. I use uh, archer's advantage and you can plug in every speck of your bow, every speck of your arrow, and <clears throat> play around with the weights um, on the front end, weights on the back end, the length of your arrow. And it has a little meter that tells you exactly where your arrow is perfectly spined. So I do all that um, before I build an arrow. It tells you what the feet per second will be and the kinetic energy. It gives you charts. It's a fantastic thing. Um, so the first thing I do when people have bad arrow flight is I put their info into that and run it and see and usually their arrow spine is off um beyond that a lot of people have their sights pointing this way and their rest pointing this way um that's obviously just you know most people aren't techs and bow shops a lot of the time are trying to just get people in and out there's a lot of great bow shops out there i know do a really good job too um but yeah, spine is the biggest thing. And that'll affect your, your broadhead flight more than anything as well. So what effect does being underspined have on your broadhead flight? Well, if you're underspined, then that means your bow is putting out more energy than your arrow was designed to take. And it just won't fly optimally from that, right? It's better to be slightly overspined than under. I actually tend to overspine my arrows just a little bit when I'm building them because they break down over time. Um, and anyone who's shot the same dozen arrows for a long time will know you can actually shoot the spine out of arrows. 
and one day they just don't fly. Um, so it does slowly break down, but um, yeah, being underspined isn't good. Your arrows will break down really quickly. Uh, always be a little overspined if you can, in my opinion. So what is, what's something I want to give people stuff on the podcast that they can practically look at through their setup sure. is so when someone's shooting, what is an underspined arrow going to do at, at longer distances where you can kind of sit back and watch the air? What's it going to look like in the air? Fish tailing. You'll see fish tailing. Um, another thing you can do is if you're shooting on a calm day, don't move between shots, stand in the same spot and shoot. And then when you walk up to the target, look if your arrows are all perfectly parallel. If they're not, well, it could be your arrow rest. It could be a number. It could be your hand position. It could be a number of things, but it's often is a spine issue. So you can actually, with a with an underspined arrow, you could have one coming in from the left, one looking perfect, and maybe one coming in from the right. Will it look like that, or they all like come in at a weird angle? Uh, they'd be a little bit more sporadic. Um, really? Yeah. In my experience, it's it's a bit sporadic. It's funny that we talk about spine because um, people often get spine mixed up with weight so like people see I, I had a buddy that bought arrows he's like these are 500 grains i'm like how do you know and he's like they got a 500 on them and i'm like okay and this is about this is like several years ago back before i knew i'm like all right legit and so every time we're shooting he sh the ranch fair would call it like a twizzler or something like that but his arrow is like fish tailing like a noodle in the air and he was shooting one six inches left and then one a foot right and then one low one high he's like and he, he did this for like a month, just completely pissed, like screaming every time he was shooting his bow, getting mad about it. He was shooting a 500 spine arrow out of like a 70 pound bow. He was literally shooting like a kid, like a kitty arrow. It was like for youth. It was like for 30 pounds. And that th I was like, you're lucky your bow didn't blow up. I mean, <laughs> shooting that thing out of there. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, that's right. Like you're lucky that arrow doesn't explode because I mean, your arrow isn't going to fly good if all it's trying to do is not explode in the air. Um, so yeah, spine matching is so important. Where do you stand on yeah. FOC? Is that something that you're cognizant of or is it just, Hey, I'm going to build a heavy arrow setup, something, um, that is spined correctly, has the right vein configuration. Is that something you're mindful of at all? Is there a percentage you shoot for? I don't think about it. I haven't okay. calculated FOC in years. Um, I know it is important. Front end weight is more valuable than back end weight. Um, there's no denying that in my opinion. So when I'm building up an arrow, my back end configuration is always the same. Four fletch. I do the white because I like to see blood. Um, I shoot that I shoot that same yeah. white with the wrap, just like that. Yeah. It's the best for seeing. If you hit guts, you can smell it, you know, you can just you can tell your shot best off white. Um that's my back end configuration. Always my front end configuration. Um I shoot the ethics archery inserts which is nice. They come standard with the serious arrows now. Um, and you can select which weight uh, you want before you buy them. Um, these inserts have a post that go into about here in the arrow. And I love that because it's just, that's not going to break on the front end. Right. Um, but yeah, if I'm adding weight to my broadhead, I'm adding or to my arrow, I'm adding it to the front for sure, because I am mindful of the FOC, but I don't calculate it. What is, what's the weight of uh, that insert that you're shooting right there? I guess it's, would that be considered an outsert because it comes out of the arrow? Yeah, they call it the, the two piece outsert system. So it's a post that goes in, like I said, about that far, maybe two and a half inches. Um, and I believe in this arrow, I have an aluminum post and then the stainless steel sleeve. 
Um, and that's just a matter of weight matching. You can do stainless everything, aluminum everything. Um, but yeah, 110 grains in the front end. And then I always shoot 100 grain broadheads just because it's so universal. Yeah, one of the issues that I've seen is a lot of people are moving towards these micro diameter arrows, these five millimeter, four millimeter. Um, and what I've noticed is with a lot of the fixed split or expandable broadheads, when you screw those into the arrow, they like kind of overhang over the arrow and the diameters don't match up. Yeah, that is something that's being worked on and fixed. Um, I love the micro arrows. Um, I think like they penetrate better than anything and they fly great in wind. So now they're actually making for those most guys shooting those, at least in these parts are shooting this same, something like this, a two piece system where this sleeve kind of fans out at the end to match that, uh, the broadheads diameter. Yeah. I I've kind of got sold on the micro diameter thing because when I had it explained to me of less surface area going through the animal, less drag, similar to like fletchings, less surface area, less drag. I was like, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I've got a lot better penetration since I switched to a micro diameter arrow. Oh yeah. I mean, you go out to a, a 3d shoot with guys and look in the targets at the end of the day and see whose arrows are going the deepest. It's always the micro. I mean, uh, draw weight and everything aside, the mm -hmm. same arrow or the same bow shooting two arrows, the micro will go deeper. I've almost had to switch to a, like almost like a target, like a different type of arrow when I'm shooting 3d because I'll have, micro diameter arrows and like we were saying i have a maxed out draw maxed out pounders on my bow i was blowing through 3d targets and watching my arrow skip and just fly and i'm like yeah. god there goes like 30 dollars right <laughs> there that happened to me many times on the range yeah it's a good problem to have i guess eh? it's a fa it's a fantastic problem but it's frustrating it's yeah, it it's one of the same for a different reason it's like one of the same one of, or a different reason that i quit shooting like uh like wild pigs we have a ton of pigs around here um just in this part of the states and i i would shoot them and it's super hard to penetrate these pigs their skin's like freaking leather especially with a with an expandable and so i'd shoot these pigs and i'd watch them run off with a micro diameter arrow a broadhead a nocturnal and I calculated it all up. It was like $45 that they were running off with and they would just to never be seen again. Yeah, no, that's, that's something I've never done, but I'd love to do. We have some wild pigs in Alberta, but few and far between. Um, but you know, on the, on the micro thing, I don't know if the, I don't know if there's any evidence behind this, but I have a theory that they are stronger too than, than thicker arrows. My idea is that you're packing the same weight into a smaller tube basically so it's mm -hmm. more dense i don't know maybe that's another one of those things i just got in my head but um i'm all for it that's that i mean i'm all in for bro science i mean it sounds <laughs> it sounds right. Um, right yeah it feels right it's like that antidote when something works for you you're like yeah it's definitely stronger yeah i mean yeah, well, look at fishermen right everybody's catching fish but this guy's right you know yeah exactly do you do you pay any mind to like in a an arrow with like an aluminum jacket versus a carbon arrow or anything like that. Yeah, totally. I used to shoot the FMJs and like, that's a great arrow, very strong. But the only thing I don't like about the aluminum jacket is that over time they do bend, right? You shoot it. You shoot a lot. I shoot a lot. You look at those things after a thousand shots and they aren't straight as can be anymore. So I like the pure carbons. One thing I've noticed and, mm -hmm it's kind of like a joke among my buddies is 
I call the FMJs like the one shot arrows because <laughs> when you shoot them, I, it's like a lot of the times uh, the jacketing around the front of the arrow starts to like rip almost like, like I got in a wreck with my truck and it has an aluminum hood. It was so weak that I grabbed the hood when after the wreck and I could rip it with my hands. Really? Like, and I was, and the same thing happens with those arrows. You, you hit them and they like, they fragment and you can like grab that aluminum, like peel it off almost. Mm. And so it's like, every time I shoot something, it costs me $40 because it's like, yeah. I, I don't think I've honestly yeah. had one that has lasted more than one shot though. Really? Yeah. They're really lethal. And I get, I mean, they're good. They've worked well for me, but it seems like they're a one shot arrow. Yeah, I could totally see it. I mean, I can't see an advantage that you get with an aluminum arrow over a good carbon arrow. See, it, my thinking in the beginning was like, oh, they won't break like a carbon arrow. But then yeah. I've had very few carbon arrows break like these aluminum ones have. So I've, I've proved myself wrong. Yeah, no, that's it. <clears throat> yeah. Well, thanks for jumping on the podcast with me. I know it's it's uh, in the evening, your time. And this was really fun. We'll definitely do it again sometime. Yeah, totally, man. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, cool. So people wanting to connect with either Tooth of the Arrow or you, where can, where can they do that? Well, Tooth of the Arrows on Instagram, Facebook, just started a YouTube channel. Check us out. Um, with me, I'm on Instagram, uh, hauk.bowhunter. Um, I don't post a lot, but anything I shoot gets posted, so you can keep up. Yeah, got plenty of those kills on there, though. Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> that's all Instagram's for. That's that and showing off a lady every once in a while. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, cool, man. I appreciate it. Okay. Likewise. I'll talk to you later, you. man. Take care. Hey guys, appreciate the listen to the Hunter's Advantage podcast. 